Every year, the Apple Corporation hosts its Worldwide Developers Conference, usually in early June, and they always come out with some software update and sometimes some new updates to their hardware. And this year, they came out with this new device, kind of looks like ski goggles, like these AR Apple Vision things. It looks really cool. It's augmented reality, so like you're in a room like this, and you've got these things on, and you can do all your computer stuff on them, and like, it's crazy. Like, it, it looks like if you're watching a movie on it, it, it could be as big as this room and high definition and all this crazy stuff. And I'm sure there's gonna be lots of neat applications for it, but it's this, it's this alternate perception, this alternate reality. And, 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 and the upside of this is really cool. Like at best it can help you maybe be more productive or more in touch or more immersed in a particular experience or what you're working on. At the same time, it might be, you know, if, if misused, a person might, mistake augmented reality for something truer or something better than reality. And in a way, we all sort of move through life in an augmented reality. We walk through life, every single one of us, with a certain set of assumptions about the world and the people we interact with and the way that things are. And those assumptions, newsflash, they might not be as accurate as we all think they are. In fact, that's exactly how arguments happen. Two people are looking at the same red rose. Objectively, it's a red rose. One person says it's pink, the other person says it's salmon. I say I'm colorblind, so I don't care. And, and, and the other arguments break out. Or you're on the road and somebody um, merges in front of you, right? That's a fact that happens. Now, one person's perspective is, they just cut me off. The other person's perspective is, Oh, some sick driving, you know, like the mad skills right there. And so you can see how we all kind of carry our own perceptions into almost every interaction with every person uh, that we come into contact with. And as Mark, the gospel writer, is telling the story of Jesus in his gospel, he is aware at least of some of the perceptions that his original audience may have had, their view of reality. Uh, he was likely writing to first century Jewish people who had some very strong assumptions about who they were and what they needed out of life. So they would have assumed, rightly so, that they were God's chosen people who were being oppressed by the Roman Empire, and they would have perceived that they needed rescue from this oppression, this occupation. Sounds right to me. Uh, and they would have, in general, assumed that because they were God's chosen people, they didn't need so much moral or ethical saving as they needed military saving. After all, on a righteousness scale, they perceived themselves as light years ahead of the pagan Gentiles who were literally unclean, ungodly, and far from salvation from the living God. And in fact, just last week, we read a story about Jesus uh, who had gone over to a Gentile uh, neighborhood area, and he encountered this unclean, demon-possessed Gentile man. This man in the story from last week fits all the worst stereotypes of conservative Jewish thought. Of course, a Gentile guy would be filled with demons. Of course, that kind of guy would be living among the tombs where dead people are buried. And next to groups of unclean pigs, of course, that fits the perception of what a Gentile would be like. And then there's Jesus, a Jewish guy, going around teaching, right? And what kind of Jewish teacher would take his disciples to a place like the Decapolis? 
He intentionally crossed the Sea of Galilee, took his students, his disciples there. See, we can't trust this Jesus to be an orthodox teacher of the law. He does things like that. But in our story this evening, Jesus comes back now to Israel. He comes back onto Jewish territory. And what we're going to find is that in this situation, the place he goes and the people he encounters are just as unclean, just as chaotic, just as desperate as the Gentile lands were. And once again, Jesus gets in the middle of it. Mark's Jewish readers would have expected, of course, that a Gentile land produced unclean situations, but they would have been shocked at the grace that Jesus extends to the demon-possessed man, maybe even admiring it from a distance. It would have been easy for them to believe that those people over there needed healing, that pagan groups needed salvation, that foreign cultures would be, uh, need a good dose of purity and power and healing from the Messiah of Israel. But this story is intended to reveal that same desperate need back on home soil. And tonight we're going to be focusing on Mark 5, 21 through 43. I'm going to go ahead and preach out of the NIV so that it's the same as your pew Bible. It's a longish passage so if you want, you can follow along. And the way that this passage is broken up is we've encountered this before in Mark's gospel. It's called a sandwiching rhetoric or technique. And so you've got two pieces of bread and in the middle, you've got the meat and cheese or peanut butter and jelly or whatever your filling of choice is. But that's how this text breaks down. There's an opening section that correlates to the end section and then the middle is, is a different sub-story that all goes together. And so what I'm gonna do, because there's three parts to the story, is I'm going to walk through it in thirds and kind of address it as we go. We'd better pray. Lord, I pray that you would help me to communicate in the way and with the words you want me to. And I pray that we would be able to perceive what it is that you're saying to us that we would have open hearts and minds to see ourselves accurately, to see you accurately, and to see our world accurately. Thank you, Lord. Here's how the story begins. Remember, Jesus is just coming back from the Decapolis where he's encountered the Gentile demon-possessed man, all the pigs, when Jesus had crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she may be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. So the scene is set. This is part one. Jesus is back on Israelite soil, and as soon as he gets off the boat, he's surrounded by crowds of, of common people who, who want to hear him and see him and be around him. His reputation as a teacher and a healer, as an exorcist, and maybe more importantly, as just a man who is kind and is with people, it, it precedes him, and people just want to be around Jesus. 
It seems that the only people in Israel who are opposed to Jesus at this point in the Gospels are, are, are those who are in offices and positions of authority. Now, Jewish officials were weary of anything that would cause a commotion, like a public scene, because Rome uh, frequently and violently put down any kind of over-enthusiastic gathering. In fact, there were laws about how big your gathering could be, and it had to have religious purposes, but if it was too zealous or, or enthusiastic, they might freak out, think it was a rebellion, and, and, and hurt some people. So the re- Jewish religious leaders and civic leaders really wanted their people to just be chill, They're trying to walk in this tension between loving their own people and making Rome, appeasing Rome so they wouldn't come down and crush everybody. And it seems that the religious authorities were particularly skeptical of Jesus. Not only was was Jesus gathering crowds, but he didn't fit their perception of what a good Jewish teacher ought to teach like, uh, let alone what a Messiah ought to be like. Now in the story, we learn that one such religious leader was in the crowd, and his name was Jairus. Now, that's an important detail because we don't often get names for these characters in the stories. It's likely that Mark adds Jairus' name to add historical weight to the story so that as readers are reading it, people could say like, oh yeah, I remember that dude Jairus, or was there a Jairus on the payroll of the, of the city? You know, so like people could actually look this stuff up and and. And, uh, and test the story and see if it was historically accurate. And so this guy Jairus is in the crowd. Now, up until this point, he would be a man who likely perceived um, his life as fairly well put together. He had a position of power in the community. He was a synagogue official. He was a man of some wealth because we learn later in the story that his daughter had her own bedroom, which was very rare in first century Palestine. Lots of times families, even moderately middle-class families, would live in one dwelling together, sleeping in one common room. So the fact that she had her own room is a tip towards the wealthiness of Jairus. This is a man who was seen by other people as being really close to God. He was righteous. He was well-respected. He was good. And Jesus drew crowds of common folks all around him, but Jairus wouldn't have perceived much of a need for Jesus in his life, right? Uh, That is until his daughter got sick. And the text says that she was dying in the NIV, I believe, but the Greek text is even stronger. It says that she was terminally ill, She was going to die. There was no, she might get better about it. No amount of privilege or power or wealth could save this man's daughter. And so he perceives his need in that moment. Isn't it interesting? There's, for every one of us, there's a line or an event or a circumstance where our comfort of of wealth and position and power and ethnicity and all of it, it sort of becomes irrelevant. Like there comes a point in everyone's life where no amount of external trappings can help us. And so this man, as desperate as he is, he humbles himself, he enters the crowd of people, and upon seeing or perceiving Jesus, literally, he kneels before him, which is an extreme act of humility for anyone, but especially a man from Jairus' station. Somehow Jairus has faith, 
even if desperate faith that Jesus would come and if he did and he laid his hands on his daughter, then she could be saved. Not many of us in this room are in as an elite position as Jairus was, but most of us, most of us have a life where most of our daily needs are met, right? Most of us don't want for food or housing Most of us have our daily needs provided for. We're a part of a church, or if you're visiting, you could be, like, we're pretty open, right? So, like, you have a community, right? You have a community. That's such a blessing. And if we're not in touch with reality, we might assume that we really don't have much of a need for Jesus, Because life can just be pretty good. I mean, after all, we're the ones who go on the mission trips, right? We're the ones who are sent to help our neighbors. And and, and next month, we're going to be doing literally Serve Bellingham, a four-day thing where we're serving other people. And it's right that we should do those things as long as we're not doing it from a place of power, but from a place of love from a place of solidarity, having said, you know what? We are desperate for Jesus too. And we want to share him with you. Our wealth, our health, our religious practices, these things can cover reality like augmented reality goggles. But unless we realize our great need for Jesus, we are only fooling ourselves. For Jairus, his dying daughter was the presenting issue, but it was so much more than that. It brought to mind how meaningless in the end his power and position and righteousness and wealth were in the face of death. Jairus couldn't save his daughter, let alone save himself. It was the severe mercy of this crisis that allowed him to perceive his need for Jesus. And Jesus did not deny him. He received Jairus' repentance, really, his submission and his faith. And the question, I think, from this first piece of bread of the sandwich is, do we perceive our great need for Jesus? Do we perceive our great need for his forgiveness? Yes, even if you've been following him for a long time. Our need for Jesus to give us actual life that's not just like counterfeit life of checking things off a list and managing households and going to work and you know the monotony oh lord open our eyes to our need for you but now we come to the middle of the sandwich story here's how it goes A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been the subject to bleeding for 12 years. She'd suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. Now when she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. Because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped. 
She felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. And at once, Jesus realized that the power had gone out from him and he turned around and he, and, and he said, who touched my clothes? <laughs> you see the people crushing in around you, the disciples said, yet you ask who touched me? Like, come on, be real. But Jesus kept looking. He kept looking for who had done this. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and she fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Be freed from your suffering. So Jesus responds to Jairus. He's on the way to this man's house to lay his hands on her daughter, on his daughter to heal. And then immediately we're introduced to this narrative tension. We know that this little girl is terminal, that time is of the essence, but Jesus pauses to tend to someone else. Who could possibly be so important to sidetrack Jesus from tending to Jairus' family, the synagogue official? The answer is another desperate person. A person who was nearly the opposite on the social spectrum of Jairus. Because unlike Jairus, this person had no name to us. Jairus was a man, she was a woman. Jairus had power, she appears powerless. Jairus was wealthy, but this woman was tragically poor. She spent all of the money she had on doctors who could not, doctors weren't like doctors like we think of them in the first century. Yeah, um, they often weren't very helpful. They made her condition worse, adding insult to injury. Jairus was ritually pure. He was a religious leader. This woman was ritually impure. Her chronic bleeding would have made her an outcast from social settings, let alone religious settings. She had no business being in this crowd, touching a man like Jesus. Compared to the Gentile man with the legion of demons in the last story, this woman was at least an Israelite, one of the chosen people of God, she could be proud of that, and yet she's one of those insiders, right? She's inside the people of God, but she's living as an outsider. Yes, she's an, a daughter of Israel, but she has to be on the margins of society. And she's well aware of her low position. You know, there's many of us, maybe you, maybe people in your life, maybe people in your family who feel out of place in our own skin, in our own communities. So many of us feel like we're alone even when we're surrounded by people. Our culture in general is the most connected culture and generation of any other in history. Like, through social networks and the devices in our pockets, even my wrist, I can get text messages and funny photos and memes from some of you. Some of you are texting me right now, don't do that, no. Um, it, we're so connected and yet isolation and loneliness is actually endemic. It's in the DSM-5 now, it's like such a big deal. 
loneliness. In, in the UK, they appointed a minister of loneliness. I'm serious. This person's job is to help build community. The, the secular system has to build community because we're lonely. Whether it's depression or anxiety, shame, or habits of sin that, that seem impossible to break, trauma maybe that's holding you back, or literal physical illness like the woman in this story, the statistics say that in a room like this one, over 50% of us struggle at times with feeling isolated or out of place. How does that make us feel about God? If we feel so out of place when we're surrounded by people we can see, if we feel so weak and vulnerable around other humans, how do we think God perceives us? What does the gospel have to offer us who have a hard time seeing our own self-worth, let alone imagining that this massive God who we just sing all these wonderful songs about and read about creating, could he really like, take notice of us? What do we do? I'll tell you, our, our culture suggests that we play the victim, that we look outside of ourselves and blame our circumstances and other people for how we feel. That if only everyone else will go out of their way to please me, then I'd feel a lot better. But in general, the victim attitude makes us feel self-focused, bitter, powerless, and either passive or angry. Let's not water down the reality. Life is just so hard. It, it just is, you know? And the woman in this story we could easily understand if she had just stayed in her place, maybe in her community of other isolated, ostracized women, and you could almost imagine the conversations that would happen. But this woman is different. She's bold. She perceives that she can't heal herself. She's also not a victim. There is a savior and this text says that she heard about Jesus, and, and based on what she hears about Jesus, she risks everything to go to him. She risks being in public, being in a crowd. She doesn't have Jairus' position to just, you know, notice like Jairus, even though he's desperate, like he just goes right up to Jesus and says, my daughter, you know, like he just assumes that Jesus is gonna give him an audience. This woman has no such position. She's like, maybe if I can just sneak up behind him and touch the hem of his, of his robe, right? In the strange grace where faith in Jesus, however raw and uninformed by theological categories, in, this, in that mysterious space, Jesus heals her. That's what faith is, by the way. Uh, not believing in the right things. You gotta remember, Christian theology didn't exist at the point, this point in history. There was no mere Christianity you could read. 
to get your head around this. I'm not saying, like, I'm all for learning and being well-informed. I paid a lot of student loans off to get well-informed. But what I am saying is that faith doesn't require those things. Faith in Jesus is putting your trust in him, plain and simple. And for this woman, faith meant trusting, probably full of doubts and wonderings mixed in. It meant trusting that Jesus could and would do something for her, even for her. Maybe you're feeling isolated even in the midst of community. Maybe you feel far from God or, or, or un, uh, unseen or un, unnoticed or unwanted. God is not waiting for you to get right before you come to him. Jesus shows us who God is. Jesus shows us what God is like. And that means that despite your doubts and fears and your feelings to the contrary, Jesus will receive you when you come to him. So what would it look like for you to have faith in Jesus? To pray even the simplest prayer of desperation and honesty. How he loves us, all of us. How he loves you. We come now to the final part of the sandwich. We see that the woman's faith in Jesus has released mysteriously this healing power, but now we need to know how Jesus' delay affected Jairus' daughter. So while Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid. Just keep believing. He didn't let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion, the people crying and wailing loudly, and he he went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? I think Jesus liked dramatic, like, come on, Jesus, you knew. The child is not dead, but asleep. Sleep is a way, a Hebrew way of saying dead. They laughed at him. And he put them out, and he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him, and he went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished, and he gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this, and then he told them to give her something to eat. To the waiting Jairus and to the watching world, it appears that Jesus is too late, that death has the final word, that all is lost, but when Jesus is in the story, death does not have the final word because the Lord of life has come. When Jesus says to the little girl, arise, he's using the same root word for the word for resurrection, 
Granted, this little girl was not resurrected. She was resuscitated like Lazarus in John's gospel. She was brought back to life by the power of Jesus, but there is a hint there, by using that same word for resurrection, a hint of something more, that one day there will be a resurrection, a final defeat of death, and life for all who are in Christ. Now, it's tempting to read this sandwich of a story and ask why Jesus doesn't heal everyone. I would love to know the answer to that question. Why do some seem to get special treatment and then they make it in the Bible, whereas most others don't? Most others have prayed for healing and only received silence. Super valid questions, but not the questions that this story has any answers for. This story is about, actually about something different. It is significant that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have the same story, all in the same sandwich order. Jairus comes in, bleeding woman in the middle, Jairus' daughter healed at the end. All three of them have it in the same order, in the same way, and I think there's two main reasons for this. The first reason is simple, it's how it happened. (laughs) It's how it happened. The second, though, is that there's a theological significance We heard Anne read earlier from Isaiah 64, and I'm just gonna read 64, six, which says, all of us have become like one who's unclean. All our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. I'm not to be gross, that it is literally talking about menstrual rags, like the woman in the story. All of our righteous deeds, all the, the good things we think we do, you know what it amounts to? filthy rags. All of us wither like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Like basically, in a nutshell, no one can stand on their own righteousness. Isaiah is talking about Israel. They were desperate for God to rescue them from captivity. They had rejected him by turning to idols and going through the religious motions while neglecting the the things like caring for widows and orphans and doing justice and looking out for people and having equity in the marketplace and all of the important things of actual life. And fast forward to Jesus now, hundreds of years after that Isaiah 64 passage, the religious leaders are doing the exact same things. But in our passage, you have a woman uh, who, who has been unclean like filthy rags for 12 years. 12 tribes of Israel. He calls her daughter, which she's not his daughter, right? That's how God often referred to Israel in the prophets. He would call Israel his daughter. But this daughter, unlike the Israel and Isaiah, this daughter shows faith. And then you have a religious leader who lets go of his dignity and his pride to place his faith in the rescue of Jesus. And by a living example, Jesus is challenging Israel and us to perceive our need for a savior clearly. Just because Israel was chosen, just because we're sitting in a church, just because I preach the gospel, these things, it's not a slam dunk. It doesn't mean that we're all, not always, desperate for Jesus. It's not a defect if you're desperate for Jesus. That's the default. That's what makes us followers of Jesus. So serious is our need for God that that he's willing to come and rescue us in the person of Jesus. It's amazing. And Jesus is found with 
tax collectors, sinners like us. He's touched by a bleeding woman. He accepts her for that. He doesn't condemn her. And the worst thing a person could do, he touches a corpse. He takes this little girl by the hand before she's alive. Not many things would defile a person more than that in the ancient world. Instead of him being defiled, his life is transferred into her. Jesus is the Lord who washes feet. He's the God who hangs naked on a cross for us. What would it look like for us to come humbly to him with as much trust as we can muster to receive his forgiveness and love? Actually, as we prepare to give, go to this table, let's just pause now and confess our need for him. Let's respond personally in this moment.